You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I don't mean you, my darling. I mean America. What if it's wrong? The whole idea. Less searches for an answer. The notion has never occurred to him. What if the whole idea of America is wrong? What should he do with this man? Strangle him? Salute him? Put him in a novel? You are seeing suffering, Robert used to say when confronted with a horrible person. You are seeing someone in pain. But Viet has prepared his own exit, literal and cosmic. Nodding to Les, he brings out a pack of cigarettes. And now the Czech writer passes through French doors to an Italian loggia joining a European union of smokers. Andrew Shangrier is the author of Less. He won a Pulitzer Prize for that. His new novel is Less is Lost. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. It's a delight to be back. You know, having won the Pulitzer Prize for a novel, you're you've really you know it's the capstone of a career you you can don't need to do anything else in a sense you can just <laughs> wait for them to make a movie a tv series a webcast podcast a website remake the movie remake the tv series on and on for the rest of your life how did you decide to follow this up was less is lost already writing itself when by the time you won the prize or finished less? I, I admit it already was. Uh, I was, um, I sort of overlapped the books I'm working on because there's a lot in publication, there's like a year between you turn in the draft and the book comes out. In the meantime, you kind of start a new book. Often I have to get discharge the old book out of my system and I thought that's what I was doing. I was writing more parts of, of Arthur Less just because it was so fun to do. And then, then I the book less came out and then nine months later I won this Pulitzer Prize and I'd already had all this material and my agent said please don't write a sequel because it would be unseemly you can't write a sequel to a Pulitzer Prize winning novel it's not serious and I was like okay so I I put it all aside and I started on another book and it was really awful and I was in a in a in a quandary about what to do. And I remember that Michael Chabon had told me, if once you win this prize, you can write whatever you want to. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write a sequel. <laughs> you know, with this book, Arthur Less joins like a legendary pan- panel of, of authors. I'm thinking of Nathan Zuckerman, Philip Roth, the, the sports writer... Uh, Frank uh, Bascom. Bascom, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Henry Rabbit from the Uptight novels. Did you understand that Arthur Less would become that kind of iconic figure when you started the first book? I certainly did not think he would become an iconic figure. I was definitely thinking about those characters when I wrote him. I, I was thinking about Rabbit and his, Beck, the other Updike author creation. And um, Zuckerman in the first books, like the Ghost Rider and uh, Zuckerman Unbound, when he's really the main character and they're more comic. And mm-hmm. yeah, I thought about those books. Um, and I, and certainly for Less is Lost, I read um, the, the um, what is the 
one that he, he won the prize for, Richard Ford, Independence Day. Right, right. Because he had taken The Sports Writer, which is a really funny book, and then turned it into this much more slow-moving, epic, thoughtful book about America. And I was like, how did you do that? <laughs> I didn't crack it. But it was interesting to see people take their characters, writers take their characters and, and transform them, um, but stay with them. And Roth did that more than anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, as I, I started this book, I didn't have to get very far to, to realize how amazingly, beautifully well-written it was. Every sentence seems just to, to glow. And there are paragraphs that, that, again, acquire a glow that is more than just the sum of the sentences. Was this just fall off the t- falling off the tip of your pen as you wrote? I... I would love to tell readers it was because you want to give the impression it it, it it was inevitable. You know, you work hard to make it seem like it's all, but no, it took a lot of work. Well, also, it was a distracting time for any writer. There were elections and pandemics and these things going on. But but the joy every day is not in making a scene. It's in, use, in, in, in feeling the words. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a painter with their paint. They really like it if they got the right paint. You know, right, yeah, exactly. Which you never ask a painter about. You ask about why such a big canvas, and they don't care about that. <laughs> That's not what they did every day. You know, one of the things that uh, suffuses this book is, in fact, joy. I mean, it's really fun and beautiful, and reading it fills you with joy. It makes you positive and optimistic. Um, you created this amidst circumstances that might well be described as the opposite of joy. The depths yeah. of the pandemic, the nation's in a turmoil, you know, we're all on a hot rail to hell. And, you know, the difference between, you know, 21st century America and Orwell's dystopian 1984 is indiscernible. <laughs> so talk about finding joy amidst the rubble of America. It is, I needed to do it for myself. Also, if it was going to be another book with Arthur Less, I couldn't vary too far from my own expectations of it. I think it has, it's what you talked about, actually. It's, it's found in, in, in language and description often is where I would try to um, find joy in the way that, make it funny the way the words went together or find a description that really surprised me and that I find that like I think Proust is a those are joyous books even though terrible it all ends badly for everybody because it feels like life is really vibrant because of the narrator so I want to I that's what I enjoyed and it's also I mean it's funny and optimistic mm-hmm. in its own way you know uh I think the the humor in this book is really interesting because it operates at so many different levels and you explore so many different kinds of humor from absurdist craziness to like these really subtle jokes that go over like the course of two paragraphs and then you just give us one word that like lands the joke. So talk about exploring the nature of humor in this book, which I think you do. It is an example of all the kinds of humor you might find, from Mad Magazine to to you know uh, some sublime comedy. I, I it's hard to explain it except that I went on the principle of of 
of my own pleasure in in writing it and so there are you're a great reader of this because it's it's got little literary jokes in it and it's got bizarre words that are just very funny to me but many readers would not be interested in that kind of a joke um as well as flat out slapstick because i think those are all the things that i really enjoy you know i watched a busby berkeley movie last night i thought it was hilarious but it is not everyone would (laughs) so i I I think I peppered it with all the different kinds of things that are maybe sophisticated and flatly not sophisticated. There are some very bad puns that when I've done readings, I had to warn the audience. <laughs> well, I think the pun, unlike many people, I love puns. I think it may... Someone said to me they think it's the highest form of humor. I'm not sure that's true, but I like the sound of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I, I wouldn't disagree. You know... For me, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about the book was the way that um, you have created uh, the the narration style. It is incredibly sophisticated and really interesting. I mean, uh, it's just to talk. We could talk the entire time I about would this. Do that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, about the way this was. Uh, you tell the story, and in other words, so uh, was this something you set out for yourself in the beginning, or how did that happen? It was great luck that I handed it to myself from the first book, mm-hmm. which it, it's used as a kind of little device at the end. And here, I have uh, someone said I invented the boyfriend narrator, which. <laughs> I didn't. I think Gertrude Stein invented the girlfriend narrator when she wrote the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Of someone outside who's telling someone else's story, I realized that now I had total freedom. I could be an omniscient narrator. I could be a first-person narrator talking about the other person. I could go in to imagining that person's, the protagonist's experience. I could talk to the reader. You know, I just, it was so liberating and fun that I was, all the things I've always wanted to do, I could, I could pull out. You know, and that makes me think, two days ago, I was walking my pugs down at the beach at the crack of dawn, as I always do. And in my brain, I, I heard part of a song, Anticipation, by Carly Simon. I heard the very end of that song which has just a very haunting phrase. These are the good old days. Oh, that's right. And I think that this, in a sense, captures what for me is so wonderful about this book is that this book is is an extended exercise in nostalgia for the present, that we should understand that. The 80s were great. The 90s were something. (laughs) The aughts were less of something. But... Every single day is worth remembering and worth living as full as possible. I am glad to hear you voice that because I definitely believe that. And I don't live that way. (laughs) But I do write books trying to remind myself that that has got to be the truth. And especially during the pandemic, there were moments, you know, it was a a terrible time. But I was... um, sort of in lockdown in Italy with my boyfriend and a dog writing this book and cooking lasagna every night. And I did turn to him and say, you know, this is the worst time in history and it might be one of my happiest moments of my life. You know, that's exactly that. 
emotion, set of emotions comes through. And I think one of the things that, again, this book, the structure of, of less, you know, let the less's national tour. Yeah. It is really fun. So did you travel in through this to, to get a feel for how they're writing? You'd write about it. Yeah, I totally did. I had, I, um, it, uh, I did it all before the pandemic. I was, it was great luck because I started before less even came out. Um, mm -hmm. I started researching whatever the next book was going to be. It was after 2016 election and Trump won. And I thought I need to see the part of America I don't understand. And so I rented an RV for six weeks, an RV and then a camper van. Um, and I saw, went in the Southwest and the deep South. And I only went to small towns. I sat at the bar. I talked to people. I went to the diner. I talked to the waitress and it, and I wrote down every little detail. Wow. Well, that absolutely comes through. That's one of the things that makes this book so wonderful is it so does feel very authentic. And I think too, it's really generous. You go to all these places and, and Les goes to all these places and he just loves them. He finds interesting things no matter where he goes. Well, it was my experience too, because I went not these, obviously I have different politics from most of the people I met and they might despise me in some other setting, but they were sure lovely to me in that one-on-one -on -one experience. And people would tell me their life stories and they were sad or happy. And I, I didn't talk politics and I had such an interesting time. I was wrong all the time about what any place would be, Mississippi, Alabama. What did I know about what they were going to be? And they really um, shocked me and delighted me, even though I knew that something, there are awful things going on and have gone on in those places as in all places. I knew my book wasn't going to be about that because I'm not good at that. I'm not a political, I wish I could be like a ranter um, or have a tirade of some kind of politics, but not in my fiction. My fiction is about, you know, empathy and connection and, and, and that's, I'm glad that came through. You know, for, for me too, what was so interesting was that uh, something you said was that about just now was that you are wrong. Les is often wrong. He's a, <laughs> and I think that this is a, a really important time to understand, for everybody to understand, that we are usually wrong. And, to, and if you understand that you're wrong, it makes a big difference in how you approach people and your ability to succeed once in a while. I That is a great word of wisdom. I think it does come with age where we all realize how really stupid we are and how wrong we are and we're fine with that. Um, but we do also, I often, I mean, I left almost all social media because I realized this, this is not a form in which people say, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> like that is not expressed on there. And I thought, but that's my normal mode of even talking to even being here with you. What if I'm, what if I'm wrong? That would be interesting too. <laughs> and it's more often true than not. You know, um, the, the characters that Les meets are, are so interesting. And you, you have a, uh, panoply of, of auditors. He meets a, a 
some authors. And I think that your vision of, of being an author is really interesting. And this goes to to this book and the kind of subgenre of American books about American authors to which it belongs, which this is a really durable genre. I mean, there are not many books that are as old as some of these books we've been talking about, the Philip Roth books and and the Richard Four books that, you know, still stand up because our society and our mores and what we believe, you know, has changed radically in the, the past even just 20 years. And as such, we can look at old movies and stuff. We, you know, look at, you can just kind of go, I can't get into that anymore. Yeah. That's not true of books about kind of, you know, odd American authors. And I wonder if you care to comment on that, why that might be true and, and how that works for you. I mean, I, there's definitely an, unwritten rule that we're not supposed to write about authors like we're not supposed to do that I think in graduate school they're like please don't write about being a writer because it's it's too self-pitying and self-involved and and miserable but I think maybe if you get older you what you end up writing about is someone who is a total outsider but but a chronicler so it could be a photographer it could be all kinds of things but they don't get old because they're not, I mean, I don't feel particularly part of American society. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. I'm a little, I mean, I don't know if you do. I mean, I, there nope. are other people I feel kinship with, but the American flag doesn't make me, my heart throb. I am certainly an American, but I'm not part of the general movement of things. And I question those things. And it's nice to have a character who is also, who is outside of it. And, and that would be nice to know that that's, that's timeless um, in some way. And that those problems, that readers could associate with problems even of a bizarre profession like a writer. You know, um, for me, it, one of the things I also really loved about this book was um, the you know, the the travel narrative. This is, uh, again, a classic narrative, you know, all the way back from Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. So yeah, yeah. talk about taking that and taking it into the 21st century. Well, it was... I tried in part of this book having um, Arthur be stationary, and it just didn't work. Mm. It wasn't... Um, I had him in the Midwest, so he had traveled, but he just sort of sat there in the whole chapter um, teaching school, and it wasn't any good mm. because he wasn't interacting enough somehow. And I, maybe it's because for me as a person, when I'm traveling, I am so out of place that I'm alert to everything going on, and I have the right senses for writing a novel or taking notes on it because I notice every little bird and mailbox in the way I, I don't if I get used to something. And I like that feeling. I notice everything that people say to me. I notice my own um, not knowing how to plug something in, you know, foreign travel that comes up. But it's funny when it happens in your own country and you're like, I don't understand where electricity comes from in this room. <laughs> uh, and which means there's nothing wrong with me because everyone else understands it who lives there. You, you know, uh 
this book has one of the things too I really loved was the the troupe that is has adapted uh, Les's work into a play. And I'm guessing, is this based on the word-for-word uh, -word people here in San Francisco? David Hyrie, they do a great job. I, I saw their production of Sean Fallon's All the I, I Know When the Men Are Gone, and, and I thought it was really wonderful. They're an amazing, they're an amazing group. And they, they've done some of my work and lots of my friends, and I saw some of them, in fact, two nights ago. They're just... Um, I've certainly, I, I made sure not to pick any of those women in particular because I really admire them. Mm -hmm. But I did go on a tour of France with them once. Oh, really? Which wow. Which was just hilarious <laughs> because, and this couldn't go in this book, but they, we had a set. I did mm -hmm. put the set in the book and we had to bring the set on trains, but it wasn't allowed on the train. So we had to hide it. <laughs> And then when the conductor was coming, we had to kind of go in the bathroom with the set and move to... It was all really complicated. And just really... Every, we had a really good time traveling around France. Now, um, when you take the uh, Les on the road, this is really fun. And I. it sounds like, in fact, you rehearsed it down to the pug that travels with Les... <laughs> I didn't bring my pug on the oh. trip, but I am. I have traveled many times with my pug. So, uh, talk about the import of, uh, of the dog in this book and the character of the dog, because dogs really have a, a super character, and it really affects. They affect the behavior of the humans around them, generally in a positive way. I well, as you know, I'm a huge fan of dogs and pugs in in particular because I think they do reflect back on you how ridiculous you are. I mean, it's easy to find a pug ridiculous, but they sure don't think they are. <laughs> Everything else is just absurd to them. And I like it's very good when Arthur Les is alone and he's traveling, but there has to be someone else to reflect back on him what he's doing. And I realized I could put a dog in there certainly a very judgmental dog that would do a good job of like you know like being a sort of like a, a guardian angel who who reminds you that you're you're mortal and are infallible you know mortality is also a part of this book and, and i think one of the things that you do really well is uh less his father um, a pu public enemy. <laughs> That's a terrible pun. <laughs> uh, number one, it's a great pun. Trust me. Um, so talk about uh, putting that character in, and I think you know you make the Les's thoughts about him. Let's actually thinks about him more than he actually interacts with him. I think in this book. And unless uh, his father affects him like, you know, the sun affects the earth, you know, it gravitationally rotates it around it, the sun. So talk about the influence of a character who is not in the narrative on a character who is, in fact, for the narrative. Well, some of the, the pleasure in doing that is to, is when you finally get to meet them, it's very satisfying for the reader because you've heard everything there is about them. But I will say that his father in my first draft of the book wasn't present. Oh. Um, and I, it's one of the things about revision that you go back and you think, okay, I had a plan for this book. What is this book really about? And I looked at it 
and there is his old lover, Robert, and there is the writer, H.H.H. H. H. Mander, and then there's mention of his father in the first draft. And I was like, it's, it's a book about uh, father figures or, and growing older and having to become that sort of take over that adult role yourself and disappointment and judgment. And I thought, okay, well, he has to meet his dad. <laughs> I, I had not, there was a different character he met uh, at that scene in the book. And when I put his dad in, it really was, uh, it was such pleasure to write. And again, that's something I think that cannot be overstated, which is that when an author is having a fun writing a book, the reader is going to have just as much fun reading it. And I think you will seem quite aware of that. How do you make sure that you're having fun when you write the book? It was hard to do on this. Less it was much easier because mm-hmm. I thought no one would read it. So I was like, let's just put it all in. And this one, I was worried sometimes in my head that I would disappoint readers. And, and that stops being fun. Mm-hmm. If I'm thinking about being a reader, then I'm outside the book. The pandemic did help me forget about that because there was no one around. Uh, and when I would when I would be, read a draft and be disappointed with it, I would just try to go back and be like, what is fun? What can you do that's fun? Don't let... Because I believe the same thing, and I tell my students that when I teach, it's like... It shows if you're having a good time. And speaking of a good time, I loved H.H.H. Mandarin. (laughs) I'm so glad. I really enjoyed him. He he was a lot of fun. And I may have met people that remotely resemble. I'm sure you have. So talk about creating this character. How much did this sprang forth from, you know, the the brow of Zeus? Now, how much of it did Zeus observe out in the hinterland? (laughs) I was, well... He briefly appears in in Less mm-hmm. at the end of the first chapter, where I think he's just sick into a bucket backstage. And I I had in my mind a kind of Don Quixote, Sancho Panza setup, which doesn't actually play out very much in the book. And I was like, oh, I have like an elderly writer who's um, let's see what I could make of him. And I thought about all of the two generations ago male writers who were full of arrogance and bluster and were kind of jerks in their mm. persona. And, but when you actually, and I, I met a number of them, um, you know, like a sort of William Styron character. You probably talked to some of these guys. Yeah. And when you got down to it, they would be really generous and, and sweet. But they were tough to get through. <laughs> and I liked the idea of Arthur um, being, in a, being put in a situation um, where he was under, in the, being bullied by one of these guys whose time has passed. You know, and I think, too, of course, the character who is, in a sense, not a narrative, but, in fact, is the character. Freddie is really fascinating. I think you do a fabulous job of having him tell the story, but remind and stepping back from the story, but reminding that, that it's him. How did you, like, figure out that proportion? And and was that... A lot of moving index cards around (laughs) on a table. Like, months of it. There were so many versions where there's too much of Freddy or, like, not... Then I would... There would be a story that would be missing somehow. That was hard. And I just had to rely on my own instinct. You know, I was not going to rely on any other reader but myself for that kind of thing. And I had certain things that I wanted to do like I wanted Freddie to appear in the text 
and say, here I am. Um, I didn't expect him to take over the whole last chapter. <laughs> but that was, I was like, great. Great fun. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, is really fun are the two author, Arthur Lesses. Yeah. <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is a really interesting thing, and, and you know, all you have to do is try to Google an author, and then like somebody else comes up before the author you're looking for, and you go, "Oh my God, who's that? I don't even know that person exists, but they're a high. What the heck?" It happens to me all the time. Like, or if you try to find someone on Instagram, mm -hmm. and you think, "Well, that's their name," and it's not. It's a porn star or something. <laughs> there is another Andrew Greer out there who is a Christian singer. And we have been in contact over the years because he would really like andrewgreer.com, which I've owned since 1998. And I'm like, no way, man. I got here first. I'm older. But we do, um, we, we do interact when people get the wrong Andrew Greer <laughs> and send me a message. And it did happen to um, my boyfriend, Enrico Rotelli, that he and I went to a literary festival um, south of Naples and there on the wall was a poster tonight, Enrico Rotelli, and it was a different Enrico Rotelli. <laughs> There's two journalists, Enrico Rotelli, and they know each other, but like, and that's what made me think of it. You know, uh, also, too, having won a prize, you're acquainted with being on one side of the equation. Are you also acquainted with uh, appointing them? Yeah, I was on the National Book Award Committee. Okay. <laughs> You have a great deal of fun with that. Well, I mean, I had a fine time on the National Book Award Committee, but it did... I was just trying to think of, of funny things in the writing life, and I thought, well, that's absurd. And also poking fun at myself, because I know how these things are made, and they're made like a sausage you don't want to see. You don't want to be in the room with those people when they're making that decision. They've got all their own secret agendas and... Um, and some people won't read the books, but pretend it like all kinds of nonsense happens because we're writers, we're we're kooks, and the fact that anyone comes up with any name at all is a is is bizarre. And certainly that the Pulitzer Prize Committee came up with my name surprised um, everyone, including me. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows what went on in that room? Less is gay, and I think that. You handle that really, really well in this book. It, I, I think it just—it seems, you know, it's a part of who he is, so integrated, so well. So, talk about writing about that. It, it's not like many things. I'm sure it is much easier said than done. Well, it is. There's a sort of long tradition in certainly gay male literature of writing for either for a gay male audience where you say all kinds of coded things that no one outside would understand or events that might shock them, or you're writing for a straight audience and you have to say like, you have to come out to them in some way in the first paragraphs. And I never wanted to write either of those because there's lots of them. And I thought, I'll just do it the way I do it in life, which is I don't say anything and they figure it out. <laughs> I'll just play it through in the novel which I, it seems more contemporary to me about the way people feel about those things. So I didn't have to say, he, you don't get his coming out story. You don't get any of that. It, you just get his life. I did try to think, 
is there anything that straight readers might be interested about, about what's different? Because I'm not very aware of that. I live in San Francisco. My friends are mostly straight, so I don't feel there's anything that, I, that they wouldn't know. But I thought, so a couple times I do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I write about, um, you know, I joke about Arthur Les trying to be a good gay in New York or something and keep finding himself in a sex dungeon, which is probably not something straight people <laughs> happens to them. <laughs> but it's one of the better paragraphs in the I novel. Really, I really, really enjoyed writing that. <laughs> it, was a, it was a hoot. Um, you know, you work in different... Uh, portions in this novel like some of your servings are very small it's just like a sentence it's just you can i can tell oh oh my god this is so much fun sometimes it's a paragraph like the one you were talking about and sometimes it's it's an anecdote sometimes you know it's the uh, the whole you know big part of the chapter a whole scene and eventually it's the whole book because it holds all comes together really nicely Talk about working, you know, in different scales in the prose world. I, that's a really sophisticated question. I mean, no one has ever asked me something like that. I think the hardest thing for me in writing is pacing. It's, it's the only thing I think about. I really, I don't find the characters or plot or any of it hard. I find the pacing really hard. Maybe that's because that's where I fail as a storyteller, you know, um, and so I have to experiment a lot with how, with accordioning, accordioning, whatever that word is, making larger and smaller different, different parts to see whether it's too long. Sometimes you need a long pause in order either for a joke to land or for, to create suspense so that the reader's like, but I'm waiting to hear what happened to that other thing. Um, and that's all a mystery to me. And it's really, um, I do it by trial and error. And I have no, no understanding of how it works. <laughs> but by trial and error, do you, do you mean you write it out, read it back, and then say, okay, maybe differently? Yeah, maybe I'll just keep that last sentence. Or sometimes I'm like, I, we need, something needs to be longer here. I don't know why, but it has to be longer, and then I will do that. But then I'll decide, oh, this has to go in the first chapter instead, and then it's the wrong pacing. That's maddening. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's not the most fun part of it. Yeah, so you end up like transposing whole scenes from one part of the book to the other? All the time. Oh my God, that must sound it's just I, really difficult. I can't. It's there, there's completely a, invisible in the book. I'm I would so never glad, have guessed that. But, but like, I don't, can't even tell you where the moose shows up in the book now because <laughs> it's been everywhere. <laughs> it's been everywhere, but I insisted on having the moose in the book. And on the back cover, it was somehow important to me. And I kept having to move it around for pacing reasons. <laughs> I don't know where it is now. <laughs> you know, uh, Les's sister is a really interesting character. And their relationship is fascinating. Talk about, you know, uh, the part she plays in this novel and in Les's life. She is not mentioned. He doesn't have a sister in the first book, nor a father. You assume he does. But... I somehow needed a sounding board in this book. And because he's not running into friends in this book the way he does in Les, I needed someone who would constantly be there for him to complain to who wasn't Freddie. Um, And instantly I thought of my friend Daniel's sister, Rebecca. And so I just 
it's her in the book. I kept her name. I kept her hairdo and everything with her permission because she's just a hilarious ally and and foil. Like to me, my friends Daniel and Rebecca, they're both incredibly funny together, and it's really warming. It's heartwarming to see it. And I thought it would be great if 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 Arthur had, you know, not a, a difficult um, sibling, but someone who was almost just like him, you know, with her own problems. And she so. She first showed up in the first chapter, and then I just kept going to her because it was so much fun. She just seemed so um, self-effacing and clever and wry, and it was great. You know, the the whole uh, gestalt of this book is so kind of silly and joyous. It, it It's really interesting to read because... You can't help but be sucked into that that mood and that mode as as you read the book. Talk about you know this uh, creating a, an experience of joy for your reader. While you know for you, there's a fair amount of tension. I would imagine following up you know your Pulitzer Prize winning novel, you know watching the world go to hell. It, it, it it's a uh, that seems like a lot of work to to create that kind of joy and beauty. I I think his sister is a good example of what I was doing, which is that I would sit and try to think of really difficult dark things and how I could turn them inside out and and sort of relieve myself of them. Because I mean, I was it was a really hard time and I thought I need to one is that I have an anxiety disorder. I'm sure a lot of your listeners do too. That is a, a burden in my life. And I thought, could I give that to a character? And so I thought, oh, I'll give it to his sister. And she has a, a convulsion because of it. And it looks just like ringing for the maid, like a little bell. And that's what she calls it. And it's just, I'm making it into that kind of joke was just such a joy for me to um, have it gone. You know, it's in the book now. I don't have it. And it's funny in the book. And I think that readers who might who have anything like anxiety would see it and recognize it and see it as a, a way to, to, um, to get through it without, um, without wallowing in it, um, without ignoring it, but to sort of look straight at it and say, you know what, it's like any other part of humanity. It's ridiculous. It's very human. Very human. <laughs> <laughs> you know, throughout this book, the the a subject that is always there, but not often in the narrative, is love. And and I think you do an amazing job uh, uh, of bringing it all together in in this book. I mean, just the the there the way it works in the book through the language and the pacing and the plotting and the prose is simply amazing to so talk about writing a, a novel where love is in the background for x hundred pages and yet it's the main subject for all of those and then creating you know the the language to make sure the reader understands that and understands that in their own lives I'm glad to hear that because in the book, it is, I mean, less people talk about love a lot openly, but not in Less is Lost because it is a book where the main character has love 
and but there's something um, uncertain about it, and it's imbalanced. And in in my mind, the sort of secret um, structure of the book is 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 correcting that balance more towards Freddie, because being a self-centered novelist myself, I'm aware that it's often my time. A writer is focused on our work, our own brains, our own, and it can be not very sharing. <laughs> and that is a sort of moment where it's the other person's turn to complain and have a tantrum and need to have Chinese food delivered immediately. And you know, like all the things a writer does when they're working on a book. And so I transferred it into the book of, of in the background, for me, the tension was, is Les going to be able to, to make it Freddie's turn? Is it going to be a shared relationship, an, an even one? Because people think of them as having a big age difference, I think, sometimes. Or think of them as being something like 25 and 50, but they're not. They're, Freddie's almost 40. <laughs> and uh, he's a grown man with his own, I think he's a good writer. He's the one writing this. And so he, there's some acknowledgement here that's different from the other book of, um, of his equality in the, in, in, and his need to be acknowledged and loved equally. You know, you mentioned age, and aging is also part of this book. You, eventually, you, you reach an age where the people you know in your life start to die. Yeah. And, you know, it's a time of both sadness, but also it's a time of maturity when you kind of respond to the, those events in a way that makes you feel happier with your own life. So talk about aging in, in Les and, and how he ages in this book, which I think is very well. I, I look forward to it to more. <laughs> I mean, I think, well, in this one, he's in his 50s, which is a different thing from turning 50. You are, at least for me, it's actually a really comfortable place to be. It's mm -hmm. a fine age. But it is, unfortunately, the age where your friends start getting cancer, where some of them die, where certainly where people's parents and other generations start to die. And those are, it's times of grief, but I think you're totally right that it's times where you're in your 50s, you can step up and support your friend in grief. You can hire the caterers. You can find it hilarious what's going on at the funeral too. You know, it isn't, the mystery is a little bit taken away and you're aware of, of it's coming up soon for you sooner than you think um, and to try to do it with grace and a sense of humor this time instead of the sort of dignity of your 30s <laughs> whatever that was I was trying to do all right there's a there's a phrase to, to remember the dignity of your 30s <laughs> false oh my god how embarrassing like, I don't think, I, mean, I hope not to be a dignified 80. I don't want to look like that. <laughs> uh, my goal is to maintain the quantum state that I think I've been in, which is to be between act alternately 18 or 85. Oh, that's kind a good of, one. That, that's, you know, where I am. You, you look at me one minute and I'm a grumpy old man. You look at me the other minute and you say, grow up, man. And that's exactly where I am. I'm certainly, if like someone, there was a 23-year-old who asked me for some advice at a reading. She was like, 
could you give me advice as a young person? And I said, here's my advice. There's no such thing as a grown-up. <laughs> That's a lie. Nobody is a grown-up. Just some people decide they're going to be this thing, and I've not decided to do that. That is, that right there, well, you can write an entire new list book about, right? That starting with that, that sounds like fun. Now, as a writer, having done this, where are you? You must be partway into your new novel. Yeah. Uh, is this character in it? This character is not in it. Okay. No. I, I, I was waiting to see if I would want to write more. That I would mm-hmm. naturally do it. But in fact, I had another project in mind that immediately um, took my attention. But it's still to write in a, in a, in a comical mode, if we can say a comic novel I don't mean like a cartoonish thing but it's still like what I want how I want to write so I think it feels like the same kind of writer you know one of the things that that interested me is that the, the two last novels are you know very realistic you know, there there are there are novels about the real world and nothing particular odd other than the super odd stuff that humans <laughs> always get up to happens. You, you've used elements of the fantastic in, in some of your other writing. And I'm wondering if, when do you see that kind of as being a way to get to where you're going? I think with every book, there's something that I'm afraid of or fascinated by, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to get at it, which is never directly mm-hmm. for me. And so... In the past, it was to look to use a fantastic premise to look at um, um, the how love changes over time, or um, the different possible lives we could lead in middle age. You kind of think about that, uh, but I think comedy to me is the same way of getting at something to you know around the back. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Comedy as an element of the fantastic. That's, well, it certainly is. That's what I think. It's a funhouse mirror, and I think time travel or any of those things are, are similar ways of getting it. You know the way that Star Trek can sometimes feel like the most intellectual program you've ever seen, even though they're not talking about the thing? Right. Because it's metaphor. Sometimes comedy can feel like the deepest way of looking at something because it tricked you. I think both of those are ways to trick you by entertaining you into thinking about something that if you looked at it directly your mind might block or you might have your own phony ideas about and so that's for me that's why I enjoy science fiction and fantasy so much and comedy the new novel by Andrew Sean Greer is less is lost thank you for joining me Andrew thank you so much for having me You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.